If you have your Bibles, take them and turn uh, to the book of Matthew. And uh, we're just going to be looking really at uh, two verses in the story that Matthew contains about the birth of Jesus. And then one verse from uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 35. And it's an opportunity for us to look, at least for me, at a different way of looking at the birth of Christ. The title is called, The Strange Thing Happening to You is of the Holy Spirit. Uh, let me read uh, Matthew one eighteen, Matthew one twenty, and Luke one thirty five together with us this morning. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they had come together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Verse 20 of Matthew chapter 1. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And then Luke chapter 1, verse 35. And the angel answered Mary and said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you shall be called Holy, the Son of God. Father, we thank you for this time that we've already had in worshiping you and I Thank you for the joy that's expressed in our hearts even as we sang that last song together. And many of us really are beginning to grasp a little bit of that last line, He is wonderful. And as we reflect on that, we are filled with joy and thankfulness because of the wonderfulness of Christ in our salvation. For the wonderfulness of Christ in walking with us and living in us through the Spirit for the wonderfulness of Christ and the hope of his soon return. And Father, we thank you for the word which teaches us so much about your Son, Jesus Christ. And as we reflect this morning for just a little bit on the work of the Holy Spirit in the birth of Jesus Christ, may our hearts once again be warmed with truth. May your word speak clearly to us. May it change the way that we live and change the way that we think and Increase our affections for you and direct our wills in greater service of you. Thank you for this book, these words of life. Make them live in our hearts today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The virgin birth is something that has troubled people for many centuries. And it still continues to trouble many people, even some within the Christian family and the Christian church. I think next to the resurrection, it's probably the thing that gives the most amount of um, awkwardness for those trying to wrestle with some of the miraculous things that occur in Scripture. And when we come to the, the virgin birth, there's a number of things that are so critical that come out of it, which make it essential for us to believe. But certainly one is that in the virgin birth is the gospel story. Because the virgin birth explains to us or helps us understand how we can have both the Son of God, and the Son of Man in one person. And on that stands or falls the gospel message. And so when we think about the virgin birth and we think about its importance for us as followers of Jesus Christ, we recognize that it's an invincible part of the biblical revelation to us from God. And that without it, the gospel falls. I think a second thing that ties to the virgin birth that is really important for us to understand is that not only is the gospel intimately connected with our acceptance and understanding of the virgin birth or virgin conception, 
But so is our view of the authority of Scripture. And I think this is equally important. If we would to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, or 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, we would read there that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's given to us by God. And it's beneficial for us. Or as Peter reminds us, that no word of the Lord was given from the will of men, but men driven by the Holy Spirit recorded the words of God. Loved ones, that applies equally to the story in both Matthew and Luke about the virgin conception of Jesus Christ. And so if we are one who says, you know, I can believe the rest of what the Bible says, but I really can't accept what it teaches about the virgin birth, then really we are wrestling with an issue of the authority of Scripture. And at some point, whether we understand it all or not, we have to bring our lives and our minds and our living into submission to the Word of God. And so as we think about this then this morning, it's important even just on that basis alone for our view of the gospel and for our view of Scripture. But we're also talking here about another mystery and another difficult thing to understand, and that is the Holy Spirit. And we've got two of these difficult concepts um, already at the front end of a sermon, and I hope I don't lose too many of you as we even get off the start. But we read in both of these Gospels that The child that was born to Mary was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Both gospel writers, Matthew and Luke, reference the Holy Spirit in the conception of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you may have been attending for a little while, and you might think, the Holy who? Who is this guy? Who is this spirit that we're talking about? You've come to church, and you've been here for a number of times, and you say, well, I hear them talk about God, and I hear them talk about Jesus Christ, And I hear them talk about the Holy Spirit. What's going on there? Are they somewhat confused? And maybe that might be the best way to understand things. I was over at a wedding this past weekend. uh, A friend of mine who's a a preacher, and uh, he did the wedding, and we were sitting at the same table, and he was telling me about a lady that had come up to him after one of the services. And she said, you know, since my husband lost his mind, he loves your sermon so much more. (laughs) And... uh, And uh, so I thought, well, maybe if we lose our minds, this stuff about the Trinity won't bother us as much. But it is somewhat troubling. But as we understand what the Scripture teaches, the Bible does teach us that God is revealed in three indistinguishable or distinguishable persons. Sorry, He's revealed to us as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a word that we use to... Um, describe that, which is not a biblical word, but it helps us understand it, and it's called the Trinity. And so when we talk about the Trinity, what we're talking about is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, or God the Holy Spirit. But even a, a part of what adds to the profoundness of that mystery is that while you have three individual persons, we have one essence. And this also is difficult for those of us who have walked with God for a long time to wrap our heads around. How there can be one God, but that one God exists perfectly in three distinguishable persons. Again, I remember a, a good mentor of mine who used to talk to me when we chat about theology and the Holy Spirit, in, or the Trinity in particular. He'd say, you know, if you are a Christian and you disregard the Holy Spirit or the Trinity, you'll lose your salvation. But he says, if you try to understand it, you'll lose your mind. So it is a difficult thing to understand how God can be one God and yet reveal himself in three persons. 
And it's just about as difficult as it is for us to understand that in the one man, Jesus Christ, we have the Son of God, fully God, and we have the Son of Man, fully man. But all that to say, when we read in Matthew and Luke, where it says that that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, it would be correct if we were to say that which is conceived in her is from God. Because the Holy Spirit is God. And so what we are finding here is that it's the Holy Spirit or God that is involved in the conception of Jesus Christ. As I was wrestling with this, though, in this past number of weeks, I was thinking, well, what would the first listeners have understood when they first heard about this Holy Spirit um, working in the womb of Mary to bring about the conception of Jesus Christ? What kinds of things would go through their minds? How would they understand what the Holy Spirit was up to? And I reflected a little bit, or I was helped um, by Sinclair Ferguson, as he sort of pointed in one direction uh, about Jesus' teaching before he went to the cross. As he was just about ready to die, he was gathered his disciples around him, and he taught them a great deal. And one of the things that was bothering the disciples is that they were really concerned that Jesus was going to go away. They hadn't yet fully understood that Jesus had to die for them, But they had sort of got the picture that Jesus said, I'm going away, and where I'm going, you can't come. And so they were really troubled by that. He had been an intimate friend of theirs for for at least three years, and they didn't want to lose their friend. But Jesus said, it matters that I go away. And it's of benefit for you that I go away, because if I go away, I will send to you the Holy Spirit. And the word that one of the words that Jesus used to describe the Holy Spirit is the paraclete. We have often understood that word to mean comforter or one who comes alongside. And it does have that aspect tied into the meaning of that word. But more and more, it seems that the word is understood to have a legal connotation. And it's that that this paraclete is a witness or an advocate. And so when you were called before a judge, you would call a paraclete to bear witness of your life, to stand up for you, to give testimony on your behalf. And so what Jesus is saying is that when I go to heaven, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and he is going to testify about me to you. He is going to bear witness about me to you. He's going to tell you about all the things that, that, that Jesus did or that I did. Jesus speaking that I did. He's going to help you understand my teachings and he's going to explain it to you. You see, as we understand the role of the Spirit of God, in the life of Jesus Christ, we understand that Jesus or the Spirit had been an intimate companion of Jesus all of his life. Throughout his life and his ministry, even beginning at his conception, the Holy Spirit was what we might call the very best friend of Jesus. He never left him. He never forsook him. There was never a time when the Holy Spirit was not with Jesus. Basil of Caesarea said that he was Christ's inseparable companion. And all the activity of Christ unfolded in the presence of the Holy Spirit. You see then how the witness of the Holy Spirit matters and is important. Because the Holy Spirit has been with Jesus through every single thing that he experienced and he walked through. From conception to death to his ascension to the Father. As one person put it, he has been with Christ from the womb to the tomb. And to the throne, he was the constant companion of Jesus Christ. In a very real way, 
the Spirit of God was with Christ from the beginning. And so, if we were to understand even more of the, the you know, look into the involvement of the Spirit with Christ, we would see it in, in His baptism. Uh, we would see it in being led out into the, into the wilderness to be tempted. Luke tells us He was led out by the Spirit. There was nothing that took place in Christ's life in which He wasn't accompanied by the Spirit of God. I think just on a passing side note for us as followers of Jesus Christ, this is staggering. And this is a revelation in itself to us. Because when we become followers of Jesus Christ and when we are renewed, it says that the Spirit of God comes to live in us. In another place, it says the Spirit of Christ comes to live in us. And so every situation we face, every place that we go, everything that we experience, we have the witness of the Spirit testifying to how Christ lived, how Christ walked, what Christ taught, what He said. And that goes with us wherever we go. As Paul said in Galatians, it's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. I find that to be staggering. And so as the first hearers would have heard this word paraclete, and they would have heard the Holy Spirit that, that, that worked in the womb of Mary to bring about the conception of Jesus, some of this stuff would have been wrestling around in their head, even though they wouldn't have been able to understand it fully at that point. I think another thing that we need to understand as we reflect on the Holy Spirit's work in the life of Jesus Christ is that this was a watershed moment in the life of these people and in the life of the Jewish nation and, for a matter of fact, for all redemption history. Some of you may know that up until this point, the Holy Spirit had gone silent. There had been 400 years where there had not been a word from the Lord. There had been 400 years between the ending of the book of Malachi and this period of time. The prophets had been silent. The word of God had been shut up only to be found in the revealed Old Testament. And so there was this time of incredible silence. And all of a sudden now, the Holy Spirit is bursting back upon the scene and he's making himself known. He's revealing God's will to his people through God's, or through his people. For instance, Zechariah which we read of uh, just a little bit earlier. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. And then we read of Elizabeth. She was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke. We read of Simeon. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and he spoke. And now we read of the fact that the virgin conceived with the Holy Spirit. For the people that were listening to this, they would have just been blown away because they would have think something amazing is happening. God is on the move again. After 400 years of silence, he's speaking and he's acting. This would have made them wake up, sit up, take note and say, what is God doing in our midst at this particular time? We find texts in the Old Testament that speak of uh, the Spirit of the Lord coming upon Jesus. Isaiah has three different texts where he talks about the Spirit of the Lord is upon the servant of the Lord. The Spirit rested upon the Spirit of the Lord, or the servant of the Lord. These people who had at, would have at least known their scriptures would have said, wow, is this that? Is this connected with that? And so when they would have heard these first words that the Spirit of God would come upon Mary and she would conceive, this would have just begun to open their minds to all kinds of possibilities and memories. I think another thing that would have happened in their hearts and minds is they didn't have the New Testament as we did. They only had the Old Testament. 
And a whole number of things would have come to their heart and mind as they began to hear for the first time that the Holy Spirit would come upon Mary and the the power of the, the Mighty One would overshadow her. There's a number of things that, again, would have gone off in thinking followers of God at that time. That word that Luke uses to speak of the Holy Spirit coming upon Mary was a standard expression in the Old Testament to describe the activity of the of the Spirit of God. It would talk, as Samuel talks in 1 Samuel 10, verse 6 and 10 and 16, verse 3 and in other places. When the Spirit of God comes upon an individual, he clothes himself with that person's life, conforming that person to his own purposes. So as the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, he, 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 he came upon her and used her for her, his purposes and for the purposes of God. It's not that she lost herself, but in obedience, she followed the Spirit's leading in her life. We, not only, a few months ago, we were at Pentecost. Um, uh, the Spirit, the time when God, uh, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to earth. And we were looking at Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And you might have um, remembered that verse where it says in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, that, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's the exact same word there that's used of Mary. And so again, as as followers of Christ, we know something of that now if we've been filled with the Holy Spirit. And it means that the Holy Spirit comes upon us and he makes us vessels fit fit for God's use. And so they would have then gone back to the Old Testament though and they would have think, okay, there's something mighty going on here if we're hearing about the Holy Spirit coming upon Mary. And it would have been something significant because the Holy Spirit in the line of redemption history had come upon barren women and enabled them to conceive in a number of cases. Uh, I can think of um, Sarah. I can think of Rebecca. I can think of Hannah. And so it wouldn't have been a surprise to them to hear about the miraculous working of God in the womb of a woman who had been unable to bear children to all of a sudden give birth. It wasn't a huge step for them than to go to this miraculous work of God in the womb of Mary. And some of them might have gone back to the psalmist. And many of us are familiar with Psalm 139 when David um, declares, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And then he continues, wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. We should not be surprised at all to recall that God is active before and during conception. And so some of these things would have been running through their minds as they heard these words for the first time. Not only that, but uh, the angel says to Mary, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Even that word overshadow is full of meaning. And, and for those, again, who knew their Old Testament, it would have, st- it would have set up all kinds of connections with, with could this be the Messiah? Because that word um, that's translated overshadow is one that's used in the Greek Old Testament to talk about uh, the, the hovering of the cloud of God's presence over the temple. 
It's a word that describes the protective hovering of God over his people. It's a word that calls to mind the presence of God in the cloud and the pillar which guided the people through the wilderness. It would have brought up images, although it's not the same word, of the Spirit of God who was hovering over the chaos before creation happened. And so in their minds, they would have been sort of, is this the one? What's going on here? This is creation. This is the exodus. It's a word that's used of uh, when Moses is described, the Lord hovering evil, eagle-like over his people. The one who led the people through the wilderness in the pillar of cloud and of fire was the Holy Spirit. Isaiah says that it was the Holy Spirit who was in that pillar of fire and that pillar of cloud. And so, loved ones, what, what's going on here? In the language of Luke, there are echoes of creation and of exodus. And those astute listeners would have made those connections in their heads. This baby is special. God's doing something miraculous here. From the very beginning of his life, the spirit of God's glory overshadowed Jesus Christ. For the most part, it was veiled and hidden. But there is something about the spirit's work and the conception of Jesus that is creative and protective and guiding. And with the benefit of the completed scriptures, we can look back with a fuller understanding and say, yes, we can see in Jesus Christ the work of new creation. We can see in Christ a new exodus taking place. And that's just what we do. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 to 20. And I know this is um, theology. And I know I'm having a hard time explaining it. But follow with me because it's, it's just amazing stuff that's connected here with the birth of Christ. When we think about the the incarnation, I think what we are led to think about is a work of new creation. The conception of Jesus, though, is not a creation out of nothing, ex nihilo, as we say, but it's a creation uh, um, working with already existent materials in the womb of Mary. And, And if you follow what Paul is saying in Romans, there is a first Adam, the Adam that was created in the garden, and then there's a second Adam, the Adam that is now created to lead us into the promised land. And there is a connection between the first Adam and the second Adam. There is continuity between them, and that continuity is maintained through the fact that Jesus was born through the Virgin Mary. But that continuity is also broken in the fact that Jesus is conceived Through the Holy Spirit. This new Adam. This Jesus Christ is the one now. That is going to bring. Order. Out of the chaos of our lives. The vast sweep of history is found in two prototypes. Adam. And Jesus Christ. Adam represents all of humanity apart from Jesus Christ. Christ represents the hope and salvation for humanity. In the first Adam, we find sin and condemnation and death. But in Jesus Christ, we find grace, salvation, and eternal life. The last Adam's power to save is so much greater than the first Adam's power to destroy. And the power of redemption in Christ far outstrips the power of destruction that we find in sin. See, there is something significant taking place in the conception of Jesus. Because in that, he identifies with the frailty of our human nature. 
connecting him in a sense with the first Adam. But at the same time, he maintains an essential distinctiveness from us in that he is not guilty of sin, making him able to be the second Adam. Because he is not, because he has been made holy from conception, as the angel said, he will be holy. We call him the last Adam, the man from heaven. And so as we follow through scripture, Jesus is in every way connected to us. But he is free from guilt and from the curse of Adam's fall. Since his person is not from, from the root of Adam, so to speak, he does not share in the same guilt and condemnation of Adam. Since he though has assumed a human nature through the Spirit who has made him holy, this union from the moment of his conception, he is one of us, um, but he is not like us in sin and guilt, and so he's capable of bearing our guilt and our shame. Were his origin from earth, were he from human parents, he would share our guilt and our shame. So as they would have heard these words, and as we look back on them now, we see that God is doing this remarkable work of new creation in Christ Jesus. But a second thing that we see also, because we would have seen this in the words of, of Mary, or the angel to Mary, that there's also a reference to the Exodus. And just as God through Moses led the people out of slavery into the promised land, so through Jesus there is a new exodus. And it's a greater exodus. And it's an exodus from the darkness of our sin, from the captivity of our sin, from the slavery of our sin, into the freedom of Christ Jesus, and into the hope of eternal life. It's rather astounding what's taking place as Jesus is conceived in the womb through the Holy Spirit. As I was reflecting a little bit on this, the New, the New Testament nowhere suggests that the sinfulness of Jesus or the, the sinlessness of Jesus was due to the lack of a biological father. That somehow sinfulness is passed on through intercourse and more specifically through the male. Rather, the, the emphasis in Matthew and Luke is simply on the Spirit's work in Christ Jesus. And what we see in this is a, is a new birth. It's a, it's a new creation. It's a, something that is done by the Spirit of God. And in the birth of Jesus Christ, no man has any part in us. He's not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And I think as I reflected on that, I, I was thinking about us as, as Christians. Is there not a parallel between the birth of Jesus Christ and your and my new birth into the family of God. It's not by our will. It's not anything we do. But it's a miraculous work of the Spirit of God that works in us and brings about new life. Paul talks about this, that the old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This is the work of, of new birth. It's the work of being born again. And so as we think about the virgin birth and we think about the Holy Spirit coming upon Mary in the conception of Jesus Christ, it's illustrative of the new work of life that we have through the work of the Holy Spirit. Our salvation is a, uh, is a result of the active work of the Spirit of God in giving us life. You cannot be born again unless the Spirit of God work in your heart. We are born anew by the work of the Spirit.
I think a second thing that I reflected on as I thought of this was that the function of the Holy Spirit was to maintain the holiness and the sinlessness of the one who was to be born. He had an incredible role in the sanctification of Jesus Christ. And it's hard for us to to wrap our heads around that, but but the Spirit of God is the sanctifier. And it's the, the angel says to Mary, it's the Spirit of God who, the child who conceived is from the Spirit, and he will be holy. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is active in him from the very moment of his conception. The human nature that was assumed by the Son of God wasn't created out of nothing. It was inherited through Mary. It was our human nature. As John Calvin put it, it's addicted to so many wretchedness, wretchednesses. This is how we can say, though, that Jesus is like us in every way. He had a nature like ours. His human nature needed to be acted upon by the Holy Spirit for the angel's word to be true. The child to be born to you today will be holy. We wrestle with this. The New Testament doesn't fully work out the implications of this in the life of Jesus. But it's only by the overshadowing power of the Holy Spirit beginning at the life or the conception of Jesus Christ that he could assume genuine human nature, which is what the Bible tells us. He came in the likeness of sinful man and yet remain holy, harmless, and undefiled. This should open our eyes to help us understand, I think, that we are never able to get it right by ourselves. We cannot walk in obedience to God in our own strength. Loved ones, unless we are overcome and overshadowed and overpowered by the Holy Spirit, we will fall short again and again and again and again. That's, this helps me understand even a little bit more fully than what Paul writes about in Galatians when he says you need to be led by the Spirit of God. As J.I. Packer says, you need to keep in step with the Spirit of God. As Paul later says, if we are walking in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Why? Because the Spirit is the sanctifier. The Spirit is the one that enables us to do the will of God. The Spirit is the one that guides us. He says, go here, go there, don't say this, say that, do this, don't do that. The Spirit of God was on the life of Jesus from the moment of his conception. And therefore, Jesus was holy. So, loved ones, if we too would want to be holy as the command that God gives us is, be holy as I am holy, we need to be those who say, Spirit of God, fall fresh on me. Spirit of God, take over my life. Spirit of God, rule and guide my every thought and action, and deed. And lastly, from Luke and Matthew, before I make one final point, is simply this. That the virgin conception is the way that we understand that God entered into humanity. It's as simple as that. Emmanuel means God with us. There's no other way that the Bible describes it other than Jesus was conceived in the womb through the power of the Holy Spirit who was God acting on Jesus. Here we see the work of the Trinity again in, in the birth of Jesus Christ. It makes, helps us make sense of verses like 2 Corinthians 8, 9, where it says, He who was Christ Jesus, who was rich, became poor. It means took on humanity so that we who were poor could become rich. 
It helps us understand Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 11, where we read there that Jesus didn't, didn't think the equality with God something to grasp, but set it aside, took on the form of a servant, and became obedient even to the point of death on a cross. It helps us understand Galatians 4, 4, where in the fullness of time, God sent his son to be born of a woman under the law. It all was possible through the virgin conception of Jesus Christ. One last point as we wrap up this morning and think about the work of the Spirit in the birth of Jesus. Matthew tells us that that which was conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. He doesn't explain it in any other way than simply to say this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. It's amazing to me that none of the gospel writers try and explain the virgin birth. They rather, Matthew in particular says, I won't explain it, but this happened so that scripture might be fulfilled. He doesn't provide a rationale or explanation. He simply says scripture needs to be filled. Loved ones, again, do you see now again another connection between the spirit of God? The spirit of God is the one who brings about the word of God. Isaiah, the passage that we're talking about that was fulfilled. And now it's the Spirit of God who, in order that the Word of God not fail, brings it to pass in the birth of Jesus Christ. Where it makes sense is, I think, this. And it's a reminder for me, and I hope it's a reminder for for you as well. We can trust the Word of God. I don't know where you might be wavering today. I don't know what promise you might wonder if it's true. I don't know what prophecy you might be thinking, well, that that really can't happen. Loved ones, know that if we are on this earth long enough, every single promise of God will come to pass. Every single prophecy recorded will be fulfilled. It has to because it is the very word of God. Don't lose hope. Don't give up. Don't stop believing. Hang on to the truth in God's word because eventually it will happen. I had a, a, a dear mentor speak into my life many times and one of the areas that we chatted about quite a bit was prophecy. And he helped me, I think, make sense of prophecy in this way that he said to me, Paul, you know, prophecy is given not so much to predict the future rather to explain the present. In other words, we become, we're, we're to become so familiar with what the scripture says that when all of a sudden something happens, we can say, that's it. That's what God said would happen. And, and I think that's what Matthew is all about in his book. He is full of the Old Testament scriptures. And time and time again, he says, and it is fulfilled. And it is fulfilled. And it is fulfilled. So loved ones, we are to fill our hearts and minds with the promises of God with the prophecies of God, not so that we can make money predicting what's going to happen 10 years from now, but rather that time and time and time again, our hearts can be warmed and encouraged because we can say, aha, that's what God said he would do and he did it. That's what God said. He, that's what God prophesied and it's come to pass. And so we can put our confidence in the promises of Scripture. And I think it's probably nowhere more important than when it comes to salvation. 
But sometimes we hear so many varying stories of how one can be saved or whether or not one need to be saved or whether or not there is such a thing as eternal life, whether or not we are sinners in need of salvation. Beloved ones, the Bible is true. It speaks to us very clearly that there is salvation in no one else but in Jesus Christ. It says that there is forgiveness of sins in nobody else but in Jesus Christ. It says that Jesus Christ is the only one who is the way, the truth, and the life. If you're wrestling with the promises of Scripture, if you're wrestling with whether or not you want to be a follower of Jesus or not, know that the Word of God speaks truth. And if you would only put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you would find Him to be your Lord and Savior today. And you would know the joy that many of us experience today. Put your hope and your trust not in man, not in yourself, but in the clear, written, revealed Word of God.